look, if it wasn't about money, why would you do what you do? If you could take away all the profit margins of your company, the, the shareholder value, how would you spend your time? What would be the causes that you dedicate your time against and your efforts against? You cannot artificially put a purpose on top of a company. I think it needs to be ingrained in leadership in those uh, C positions. And for leaders, I think it's really important. It's what took me, what got me through the last 10 years. It's what got me through COVID. I think if you lack that purpose, I think you're more, um, more at risk to get into burnout. Um, you're more at risk at giving up because it's then all about KPIs, about you know success. And I think the numbers prove it. Brands and, and leaders who are purpose-driven have a longer breath, more sustainable success and can take hardship and, and failures easier because their inspiration and their motivation is not coming from there, right? If you do a small good thing or a big good thing, I think it always gives you the same sentiment. So I don't, I don't think it's a matter of scale, even if it's something small. I can think it gives you that purpose and that motivation to go on. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the life stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Before we get into today's conversation with Mario Alonso DeVoo, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to leave us a positive rating and review. Share this episode with a friend and subscribe to the show. Put a brand new interviews every single Monday and a brand new takeaways episode as audio exclusive where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week every single Thursday. And now without further ado, I'm very excited to present to you my conversation with Mario Alonso Dubu. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. I am your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Today in the podcast, we are joined by Mario Alonso Dubu. Mario is the CEO, creative director, and co-founder of RDB Robin de Bois, an international award-winning marketing agency based in Vienna, Austria. With offices across the globe, RDB has looked after the global budgets for brands like Western Union, Groupon, Sage, and more. And I'm very excited to have Mario here on the podcast today. Mario, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jacob. I'm, I was really looking forward to this. And uh, as I said before, it's an honor. You know, I've been following your show for a long time and you've did some tremendous work for us. So um, yeah, this is going to be fantastic. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I've been really looking forward to it as well. Like I did some prep work and as I was going through and just kind of getting a, a picture of the whole story, I was getting more and more excited to finally get the chance to sit down with you. And so where I want to start today, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. And so the office, RDB office is based in Vienna. So were you born and raised in Vienna your entire life? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, as, as many of my stories, it's a bit, um, complex and, uh, and a bit, um, global. So, um, my dad is from Paris. France. Um, that's also why I have the French name for the agency. It's kind of like an homage to my dad. Um, and my mom is from the, the metropolis called Glocknitz, which most of maybe the Americans only know because Sissy spent some uh, vacations there when she was younger. So it's not the biggest town in Austria. So I'm mixed metropolis um, countryside, uh, but I grew up in Vienna, but spent a lot of time in France, which is still a huge part of my identity and of my my heritage, if you like. Of course. Yeah. And your, your dad's background is an illustration, right? Right. So he's, um, my, my whole French family comes kind of a mix from music. Um, so my dad and my grandfather were a drummer and, uh, accordionist 
And then my dad was illustration, uh, restoration, but he never really made a full profession out of it. So he, he never took the professional approach. There is this beautiful story. Um, and he's very French, French, right? So um, very much uh, labor laws and, uh, and, and I don't know, socialists, if you like. And um, when he came to Vienna, he had the opportunity to work for one of the biggest agencies here called Demner, which is still around and which is still one of the best as a storyboard illustrator. And um, because they wanted him to work over the weekend, he said, no, no chance. I'm not working on Saturday and Sunday. So that was the end of that story. And they took someone else. So he never really made it into that profession. But of course, he was a huge inspiration. Um, we always spent time in France. And as a kid, that was a bit annoying because he always took pictures of all beautiful old windows and doors and uh, and then did some beautiful aquarelle paintings out of it. So that always um, followed me around when I was a young boy. And for sure, as you can see the background now, um, that kind of uh, uh, inspired me for a lot of my own art styles and uh, my own career. And so then what were you like as a kid growing up? What I was like? Oh, oh you have to ask my parents. Um, I think I was... Um, um, I was very lucky, for, first of all, right? I think the whole story about RDB was, um, yes, making the most out of opportunities, but I was very blessed growing up in a very international household without the usual um, diplomatic background, right? So it was very down to earth, very blue collared. My mom was working very, very hard as, um, as a self-employed um, um, physiotherapist. Um, so she was actually the one working most of the time while my dad was only working half time. Um, and then my godmother went to Bermuda. This is actually how I started with the whole US and American football stuff. And when I was like six or seven years old, my brother then went to, I have one sister in France and a brother in, who now lives in Norway. Um, so he moved then to Spain. I grew up with him, but that was a huge influence. He's in, um, he's in tourism and gastronomy. So he brought me closer to the world of branding and corporate identity back then. Um, and of course, franchising. And um, yeah, I was really lucky because I was the only child, but not really, right? I had an eight-year-old uh, eight older brother who always uh, had to take care of me and a 12-year-old sister. So I kind of had the best of both worlds. I always had someone to rely on, but no one who really was competition. And, um, and my parents were very liberal, um, very um, left-wing. So they gave me a lot of freedom, a lot of confidence, and I'm very sure that is one of the main reasons where I am today, because I never had the, the pressure of performance or fitting a certain mold. Um, they always uh, had my back, and that's how I could develop as a, as a young boy, but then even more as a juvenile, as a young adult. And so kind of with that freedom to experiment and do whatever it is you were kind of drawn to, what did you want to be as a kid growing up? Was it an agency owner? Was it something creative? Like, what did you think you wanted to be as a kid? It started off with science, actually. Um, so, of course, apart from the, the, the lifelong dream of becoming an NFL quarterback, which uh, was a bit hard from Vienna. And uh, at one point, I wanted to do college in, in the U.S. And, and live that. And now I'm pretty happy I didn't looking at the media landscape and what they have to go through. Um, but so it started off with science. I was really into um, marine life and the ocean. And uh, I always wanted to become like a scientist studying dolphins, I think, if I can remember, which maybe also comes from being a huge Miami Dolphin fan. 
Um, and then um, it just developed. I, I, through my brother, I was like really interested in events when I started to be like 13, 14. Um, so I had my first agency when I was 13 years old um, with a friend where we still, you know, had to move massive towers of PCs from one place to the next on, on the weekends. And we started off with Flash 4 and what was it back then? Photoshop 5, doing websites for uncles and aunties. Uh, and that was huge fun. So I, there was no real idea what I wanted to become, but it always drew me into being a creator, a shaper, doing something, creating worlds. That even goes back when I was a kid. My mom told me out on the beach, I was always building. Oh, with Lego, I was always building massive cities and ecosystems. So um, there was no real, I want to become a firefighter or I want to be an agency owner. I actually had no real idea of what agency life is or what an agency actually is until I um, had my my first traineeship um, at FCB when I was um, 21. Um, so it was around creativity, doing web design events, um, building like worlds and, and, and brands. And then I moved into advertising um, after my after my diploma. Um, and I always wanted to do something around graphic design and, and, and web design. That's how it all started. Do you remember the name of that agency when you were 13 or 14? Yeah, Ma it, it was called Maus, um, which I remember back. I, I was looking at the French dictionary. So apparently there is a theme of me trying to, to bring in a French name. And I think Maus was either fantastic, great, massive, or fire resistant. I think it had is both meanings, but I really liked it because it was Mario and Moritz, uh, who was my friend back then. And uh, and so we called it Maus.org and uh, did some really cool stuff. I'm, I'm still looking back at that. And I said, like, honestly, for it being by now, oh, let me think, 20 years, even more. Um, we did some cool stuff. Flash was an awesome tool. Like you, you didn't know, you didn't have to know much of development. You could do beautiful graphic design illustrations. And so when, when Flash stopped to be a thing that, that really took a hit on me and, uh, and I still miss it. And so I'm curious a little bit, I want to dig in a little bit there about your, your fandom of, of the NFL and American football. So you said it was because your aunt lived in Bermuda, but it's also your brother was a fan of football. Your stepbrother was a fan, right? And that also drew you in? Right. So he, he started playing for the Vienna Vikings, which is, um, for whatever reason, the best amateur team in, in Europe. So there was um, an entrepreneur um, who took over the, the club in the 80s and, um, and he really built it into a European powerhouse. So he was playing receiver there. I played quarterback there for two years um, as like a junior from 10 to 12, I think, until I outgrew the equipment and uh, all the other ones outgrew me. As you can see, I'm like lean with like 60 kilos. So I wasn't built for American football. Um, and yeah, and I just loved the whole thing. I think it started with my godmother sending me tapes um, from Bermuda that she recorded from the television. And I think the first game was the Dolphins against the Bills. And that's how it all started. And then I was always kind of like a collector. So I started with American football cards, trading cards, and I still have that massive collection. And that all drew me into statistics, franchising, um, personal branding, um, and into the um, English language, which, of course, was a, a massive advantage uh, at a very young age. And I think growing up half French, half Austrian, being in touch with the English language always um, gave me the opportunity to, to like, pursue 
a global career or to always be surrounded by by, by global minds um, because I just had the advantages of, of, of being quite talented when it comes to languages, right? If you grow up bilingual, it's just such a massive advantage. It's almost like cheating. Absolutely. And and so do you still collect today? I know you still have those original collections, but are you still collecting new things today? No, no unfortunately not. No, I at one point um, it became... Uh, yeah, as, as so many had basketball cards, uh, maybe you had hockey cards, I don't know. You outgrow that around 16 or 17. And then it was quite lonely, right? You don't have that massive community in, in, in Austria. So it was, everybody was collecting Pokemon cards or stickers. And I was the one talking about, hey, I have a Joe Montana card and the Marino rookie card. And no, nobody cared, right? They were all like, it's great. Who's that? So basketball was a thing back then, but football never really took off. I'm curious if you still don't want to sleep because sleep is boring. Oh, you looked at double punct. Yes, I still do that. Yes, I still do that. Right. Yeah, that that phase. Yes. Yes. I still don't want to wake up in the morning and I still don't want to go sleep. My 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 best time is still which is an advantage because I have to work late with the US time zones. Um my best time is still from, I don't know, five o'clock in the afternoon till o'clock in the morning this is where i thrive i'm not really a morning person um but talk to me about double punk i thought that was super interesting what because you said your your family had some musical abilities so that would led to you starting your own band totally um so uh for when i was young it was actually quite nice we had i was in a great school in vienna called stumbastar it was um kind of like a very humanistic very open um actually very inspired by uh, left-wing um, Jewish communities who, who brought their kids there in the 60s, 70s because they were the first school who actually taught Russian um, from the first class on. And uh, because of my brother, most of his friends were in that school and uh, that's where I joined and they had a fantastic music program. Um, and so at one point I was playing with my dad on the drums, my music teacher and my uh, IT teacher um, in a small band in school. And um, that's where I met some fantastic musicians who were also at the same school, but way older than me. So I was in fifth class. They were in eighth. So I was 15. They were around 18. And then um, one of the, the drummer actually of that group um, wanted to do something new. She wanted to do some mix out of hip hop and rock and jazz. And they had they were really fantastic musicians, like the our guitar player Ferdi, um, still today one of the best um, composers and songwriters I know. And they asked me if I would take um, the French and English hip hop part. So I was an MC for some for some time and wrote my own lyrics and uh, and rapped in French and in English. And uh, a good friend of mine who I'm still very close today, Timo, was doing in German. So we had this mix of. I would describe it as Rage Against the Machine meets Massive Attack with Fantastic Four and MC Solar. And it was beautiful because we had we played everything live, kind of inspired by the roots. Um, so we had keyboard, drums, guitar, bass, saxophone, and the two MCs. And it kind of took off around when I was 18, 19. Uh, we won the Austrian band contest, uh, which was a competition back then. And then we had this amazing tour through Austria, Germany, and Hungary, where we played for two years and uh, were quite successful. But you have to understand that Austria is 8 million people, so the market is super small, right? And even 
even today, the the most successful Austrian musicians, apart from Falco and and you know the ones you know, um, you know, still really have a hard time making a living out of it. And um, so at one point, it was really the decision to say, do I want to pursue the creative career with graphic design and and communication, or do I want to pursue music? And um, after sleeping two years in in some uh, very rough, uh, small bars and pubs and and doing that, I said, look, um, I can't do this forever um, as much as I love it, but um, I want to pursue the other thing. And I think that was the right decision. But you did a 10-year revival a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, we did that. Yeah, we had. Um, of course, it was at one point when you then, when you then start to become got like 23, 24, the other ones turned around 30. And... Uh, even worse than creatives, musicians are even harder to organize. So getting together the six of us every time and, and, and practicing twice a week or three times a week next to work was just really hard. So at one point, um, it disintegrated. And then uh, around the birthday of Timo, uh, we said we have to get back together. And we did one more concert, and that was really lovely. And it was fun because my, my now wife, um, we got together like, couple of years after we we broke up um with the band so she thought like yeah yeah mario had a band of course yeah nothing nothing to whatever and then she saw the concert and she was like oh okay you guys uh, were like real musicians and you were like really good and so yeah i told you she didn't believe me and uh, yeah that was fun oh it was a fantastic group and an amazing time i i still feed from that today right so when it doing a presentation or or speaking in front of a crowd is, you know, easier for me because I played on stage and and I had to go through this when I was young. Um, so stage fright is 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 no longer part of my. I still get a bit shaky, but um, that really was helpful for you know going into big pitches at a very young age and having the self esteem to just be yourself and and present yourself and also to be a bit of a showman. Um, and and convince others of of what you're performing on stage, right? It's not that different from from pitching and presenting. Of course, and I feel like music is such a big part of what you do with RDB now today, isn't it? It is. It is. It's still a massive um, inspiration for a lot of the things that we do. Um, so when we did Live More Share More, that massive campaign for for Western Union, um, we really sourced a local band in Vienna um, that did an old. Um, that did a cover of that old 90s ATB song around the world, which was a perfect fit for the whole theme of the campaign. And I really fought hard with the client to, to bring on that song. And um, because I know how hard it is for local artists to, to get recognition, it was really great. They turned, I think um, they had 1.5 million views after we did that campaign um, and took off a bit in the radio, not because of us, but um, yeah, they're a fantastic band called Move. Check them out if you have the time. Like, Kind of like Eurodance, house, electronic, um, but a fantastic group. And um, what I always found striking, and, and not many people are aware of that, but advertising and music always were very, very close. So um, I grew up with Queen and Freddie Mercury being a huge inspiration. And he was a graphic designer. He actually designed the Queen logo himself. He was working in advertising for a time. Um, he did the art school in London. Um, I think if I'm... I'm not wrong. Um, Frank Zappa was um, advertising copywriter. So he funded the first album through his work as a copywriter in agencies. 
um, and a lot of the actually Austrian famous um, songwriters, they all made their living through advertising, right? So there is always a big, or there was a big bond between music creativity and the advertising scene, which today is a bit less. Um, but still, I think music and uh, and sound is so important to communication, which is a bit sad with the mobile era where you know everything's mute and uh, and everything's ten seconds. Um, but still, I I'm always really looking into what kind of music do we use, and uh, I'm a bit of an enthusiast when it comes to quality there, and try to avoid stock as much as we can. Do you think when it comes to audio that we're starting to see a bit of a shift as a result of TikTok? Because I feel like so much of the TikTok trends are driven by sound. So is that going to start bringing sound back into the fold a little bit more than it has these last five, 10 years? I think so. I think so. The, the, the fascinating thing about TikTok to me is how suddenly music becomes the meme, right? So um, how they use certain parts, certain songs as a theme across a certain meme. Um, that's really interesting how the whole generation millennials started it, but Gen Z even more started to build their own global language. Um, I had a lot of discussions about this with, with previous generations where they like, look, and I had even the same thing with my parents when I was 14 years old, where they just sit in front of the computer and, and, uh, you know, they're just on social and, and they don't do anything with their time. And where is, you know, creativity and where is, um, where is all that um, playing outside and, and, and joining friends? And I told them, look, look at what 9GAC did, what 4chan did, how they built a universal language across the globe, no matter where you're from. Everybody talks the same language, understands the same inside joke. Um, and now with music, it, it's the same. Um, I still think, though, that the whole copyright thing and, you know, on the other hand, for artists, it became really difficult, right? So. As much as music has been augmented, um, the harder it became for artists to cash in on it. And especially for small ones, that's really bad because, um, you know, they don't see anything of the millions and millions of view that a, a TikTok song gets. Um, and that's unfortunate, but um, yeah, it's what it is. It's almost going to force artists to become a little bit more, even more entrepreneurial and find additional ways to monetize beyond just the music. I think that's what's going to end up happening across the industry more and more. Exactly. Yeah, you can already see it, right? It's all about branding and, and finding merchandising around it and building your products around your brand. And then at the same time, touring is, is massive. So they all make their money with, with tours, which of course now the last 18 months was really difficult and, and they really took it. Um, but I think what's... Now we're getting into music. That's awesome. Um, I grew up with my dad playing, you know, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Queen, um, Chet Hotel, um, so like the old jazz rock um, of the 60s and 70s and, and early 80s, and then David Bowie and all of these. And what I really enjoyed about the music back then, it was about, you know, a whole album was a whole story, right? They did like operas across an album. Um, they had their songs were seven minutes or eight minutes or 12. A solo took two minutes. And today, I think because of the, the media that we're in today, I'm pretty sure they only produce for the hook, right? They know they need to produce that six to 10 second hook that is really working. And so it becomes more and more um, monotonous or stereotypical and and more whitewashed, if you like. Um, so it, it became a different kind of songwriting, right? You really need to hit that beat, that hook, 
um, nobody cares about the bridge or um, or the lyrics. So uh, yeah, it's very different from what it was back then. I think. No, absolutely. So it's all about it's all about the hook, and the hook's there more than it, the hook's more now in a two minute song than it used to be in a seven minute song. And they're getting so much exactly. shorter because they get they get paid based on stream. So if they can make that song shorter, and the more you listen, the more they get paid. So it's just exactly. interesting to see it all evolve. And what what's really interesting is what disappeared is the extended mix disappeared. Right? Um, often I hear like a, an awesome song that is two minute or three minutes, and then usually I'm looking for the extended version, which was big in the early two tens. Nobody does that anymore. It's really, apart from EDM, nobody does long versions of their songs anymore, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I'm, I feel like we're getting old too, Jacob. We're like, oh yeah, music back then was so much better. Always when I when I say that, I'm like, wait, my dad said the same thing. And then uh, it didn't get hip hop. And that was, you know, a revolution in itself and a huge contribution to my upbringing. So uh, who knows? Maybe we're just getting too old to understand what's going on. Maybe I hope not, but you might be right. Um, but speaking of the the thread between advertising and music, after you came out of school, so you went to school for multimedia arts. The first, you're ju- you're a junior art director, and the name of this agency sounded like a band when I read it, Kobza and the Hungry Eyes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was that your your first uh, job uh, no, out of so school? That, yeah. So Kobza and the Hungry Eyes is his. So um, let me give you some background. So um, I was actually of part of FCB Kopta. So Kopta was the, Rudy Kopta is uh, one of the most fascinating and um, and successful advertisers in Austria. I think he's been constantly in the top three the last 20 years. And uh, he was actually quite young back then when he, uh, when he started FCB, which was part of a major IPG network, right? So I started as so many in one of those big network agencies. So he was part of he had FCB, McCann, Low, so the whole IPG group was kind of in his ecosystem. And so he was called FCB. The agency I started was first called FCB Copta. Then IPG merged that with Draft and it became Draft FCB. Um, and then I don't know if Draft FCB is still there. It became, I don't know what happened to FCB in the, in the long run. I think it's still Draft FCB. And then at one point, a couple of years ago, he left the IPG network and started his own KTHE, Copta and the Hungry Eyes. But I was no longer part of that. So we're still friends and we still know each other. And um, But I was actually starting 2003-ish with FCB really getting experience in from, from the get-go in working on some massive brands like Nivea, uh, Borealis, um, what else was there? Some some massive uh, European uh, fast-moving consumer goods and beer brands, um, uh, UNICEF, a lot. And then actually, that's a good that's a good transition. Um, he then moved from FCB. He sold the shares of FCB and moved to Low and McCann, and they didn't have a digital unit. So um, me and my back then creative director Flo approached him and said, "Look." you are um, moving over there um, maybe let's do something together um, and we become your digital agency right and we do all the digital business that you can cover with McCann and with uh, with Lowe and um, that's kind of what happened uh, I mean he wasn't he wasn't part at the beginning because of you know obvious reasons but um, for two years we started that agency called home home full digital digital service which was kind of the idea of you know bringing 
internet and social media closer. If you come to us, you're at home. Um, of course, the obvious, uh, the home button. Um, and we did that for three years, quite successfully and not successfully for uh, different reasons. Um, but for me, it was a great school. I was, I remember I cheated on the press release of being 26 years old because um, actually we were afraid that people would perceive me as too young, but I was actually 22 turning 23. Um, and that enabled me to, you know, work entrepreneurial on some brands that you wouldn't normally never get access to. Um, and so I learned there how to lead a team, how to work on clients, how uh, to take responsibility and think entrepreneurial and, and profit margins and all that kind of stuff and culture. And culture then was actually the reason why I sold my shares there after three years and started RDP. Because as I started at the beginning, um, my whole upbringing was about, you know, social consciousness. Um, my mom with always, you know, she never took a day off um, when she was taking care of a patient. So the social aspect and the, the social justice aspect was always a major part of my my upbringing. So. After three years, I looked in the mirror and said, look, this is all fantastic, but there needs to be a different way of how we can do business. And this is not really going in the direction of my values. So I really took the decision of saying, either I can do advertising and communication the way I respect my upbringing and my values, or I have to look at something else. Um, and that's how it all started. So I said, okay, my way or you know, something else. Um, and that's how I started RDB. And so how long then, when you realized that you, it wasn't aligned with your values, how long did it take you then from having the idea of maybe I should strike out again on my own and start my own thing to actually starting RDB? Was this like you realized on a Monday and then two weeks later you were starting your own thing or was it like a month long process for you to come to this decision? Uh, there were multiple, there were multiple um, inspirations or pointers moving me there. So after two and a half years, we really grew. We, we grew quite fast with home. Um, but financially, it wasn't as successful as it should have been. And our free part leadership, because of the discrepancies in values and, and also generational, um, disintegrated and, and wasn't really working. And, uh, and then it... it went really fast. So I left in, I think I, I dreamt about RDB in September. I can remember that it was kind of a weird dream um, because it really, it bothered me on, on how we were treating employees, how we were treating clients and how the whole industry is working. Um, not saying that I was, you know, not drawn into it. But the, it's, it's, it's a drug, right? You, it's all, fascinating it's fast moving it's prestigious it's award after award it's party after party it's it's really sexy um so it started september me kind of thinking about that idea what would a conscious sustainable agency look like and back then there wasn't purpose there was not sustainability wasn't a thing right so it was just value driven um and then in December, I left and I actually wanted to take a year to build out the strategy, the system and the brand. Um, but then clients called me and, and employees called me and said, like, they want to come with me. 
Um, and so I had to start in March. And there we were, the three of us, Denise, uh, uh, as an account manager, my now wife and and even partner back there back then, and one developer, and we started you know finishing the work that we started with home and then attracting some more smaller ones and then the big breakthrough came in autumn that year with the pitch for Western Union, which is kind of like the origin story of you know our global our global reach um, with a pitch that we won for European content, actually u k content. And yeah, that was a hilarious story. And yeah, that's how it all started. So it was not as not as patient and slow developing as I wanted it to be, but that's kind of the story of my life. I, I see an opportunity and I take it and then, you know, things fall into place one way or another. Do you think like for brands today, do you think they should take more time to be thoughtful around their branding before rushing into it? Similar, you were kind of you were kind of forced into rushing into it, but do you wish if you had to do it all over again, like if you're starting from scratch tomorrow, would you look to take that year or did you find benefit in just diving in and kind of figuring out as you went along? Yeah, yeah, the the, the latter. I think um I mean there there's a lot of science around it, right? If you think about blink uh from uh, Malcolm Gladwell. If you if you look at eighty um, percent of the world, you, oh, you do the the twenty eighty percent rule. Um, I think not always totally thinking things through and figuring it out along the way um, is more successful than, or can often be more successful than spinning your ideas around and and uh, you know turning around in your sleep and, and doing it over and over again. So there's room for perfectionism. Don't get me wrong, right? I really enjoy that. And I think that's also the difference between art and, and advertising. It's advertising. This is what I love for communication. It's fast paced. You need to do the best out of the three weeks you have, right? You could do better in 12 months or 24 years, whatever, for sure. But I think having that time crunch and, and, and getting the best out of the resources you have available is it's very interesting and very intriguing to me. It's and and so I think just having to take the punches and moving with the opportunity, very fast paced, moving with the opportunities you get and making the most out of them really was what brought us where we are. If 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 I would have lingered and think, do I really want to let me tell you the story of how it all started with Western Union there? My developer was skiing with old friends of his. Um, one of the partners, the life partners of, of uh, an old friend of him was working at Western Union and he talked to him what he's doing and he said, he just joined this young agency that is really different. And he was asking, yeah, do you do social media? And he said, yes, yes, you should have a call with Mario. And so Stefan back then, Stefan Seckner, um, back then called me and said, like, you do social media? I said, yes, you do social media in English. I was like, yes. You do social media in the UK? No, but we can figure it out. And um, and then we worked our ass off for three months, really digging into the Indian diaspora, the Filipino diaspora, the target audience is there. And we created this 120-page um, document of like almost like a, a doctor's degree of how business Indian and Filipino business culture works, what are the similarities to the social culture and through social media. Um, how can you turn Western Union into something that's more meaningful than just sending money and become a part of these communities um, and leverage the community work that they do and turn it into social? 
and that's how we won the pitch, right? So if I would have thought, okay, what does it mean then to become global and will I find an English copywriter and what do I know about the Indians and the Filipinos? Yeah, no way we would be where we are today. And now we have an office in the Philippines and it became, you know, my set after friends, my, my, my third biggest love in, in terms of culture and, and, uh, and country. So yeah, you, if, if I could give one advice, it's don't be, don't be afraid to figure it out. People really underestimate themselves of what's possible and what you can do. And, and if you find great people around you and great people on the other side, it's made be clients, partners, um, there's always a way and people really appreciate that, right? If you are trying to figure it out and do your best and really do it with passion and love, the success will fall into place and you can screw up and you can make mistakes and maybe you're not as successful financially at the beginning. But I mean, look at your podcast. I'm pretty sure you didn't think um, that you'd be where you are today um, back then. And if you just wouldn't have done the first episode, which I'm sure wasn't in the quality that that you would look back today and say, this is perfect, you know, you never get started. So yeah, definitely get started and figure it out. No, absolutely. I completely agree. Like with, with the podcast as the example, like I remember it took me six months from deciding to do the podcast to actually starting it. And I, cause I wanted to make sure I had it already and I was good to go. And to your point, that first episode, I took six months to prepare and it still wasn't very good. Right. So I learned so much better by doing, um, kind of on that, on the topic of, of doing, what was the, what was the team size that was working with Western Union? Like when you got that, when you won the pitch with Western Union, how big was the RDB team at that time? Was it still the first, just the three of you or had it expanded a little bit? No, by then, by then. So one of the main reasons why we started so fast is um, I had a very romantic vision of what RDB should become from today. I would say employer branding, uh, culture perspective. But back then it was really about, we had some great people at home some really lovely and, and, and talented folks. And, uh, and I kind of had the vision of, you know, we built this agency and then when we're 60, we're still sitting on the tree, having a beer and looking back at, um, at what we've accomplished. Um, so by then I really took with, with every small job we got, I really took the risk of bringing on the team and, and I actually didn't take out the salary the first year. Um, and just to to get this team back together because they were really a great bunch of, of people. Um, spoiler alert: none of them is still with me, so it uh, didn't work out with that tree. Um, but maybe we can meet at one at one point and and still have that that beer. Um, so when we did the pitch, I think we were six, seven, six or seven people, maybe ten max. And then at the peak with Western Union in two thousand nineteen, we were around forty five globally. Wow. And so kind of early on there, when you were, you said early on, you were taking the risk of hiring people and not taking a salary. Where do you get the comfort level for that kind of risk? Because a lot of people are risk averse. So where is it within you to be comfortable in that risk? So first of all, the upbringing that I mentioned, right? So what would have been the worst case scenario for me? Um, okay, maybe I have to move back in with my parents or I have to go back to my day job as an agency, which was still... Um, an interesting and intriguing perspective, right? So if it didn't work out with RDB. And the great thing about building an agency, you don't have max. You, the, the only investment you have is the people. Um, you know, you build, you buy a couple of Macs, but, you know, startup costs are around. Maybe if you're 
exaggerating fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. So I started with twenty k. Um, that was all I had left from home. That I invested that into the agency, and you know, if that would have, and it was close. If that would not have worked out, um, you know, you're not in massive debt. So I also think there is a time for this, right? If I wouldn't do it, well, I don't know. But if I have a family, if I have a house, if I have a mortgage, and uh, and if I have maximum a lot of startup cost, that becomes a different picture. But to me, I was. As I said, 26, I think, yeah. So, you know, I didn't have kids. I didn't have mortgage. I was renting. So worst case scenario, I have to go back into an agency, which was still awesome. So saying risk or worse for me, with me in my particular situation is, would be pretentious, right? I didn't have anything to lose. So um, just taking the excitement and, and don't get me wrong, there was a lot of stress, a lot of doubt, um, a lot of pressure, um, but it was never in a way where I was like, if this fails, I'm done, right? I'm, I'm screwed. That was never the case. I, I was still a very young, talented um, expert in a field that was growing tremendously. So any agency would have taken me back with, you know, in an instant. And I prob- probably would have earned more than I was at RDB. So the risk wasn't, wasn't, Tremendous. And then I think there was some naivety to it, right? It was, yeah, let's start an office in the Philippines. What could go wrong? And now if I think back, a lot could have gone wrong. And uh, and a lot of things I didn't know back then and I know today would probably hinder me of taking the risk too. But I think kind of what you did a very good job of just hearing you talk about is you contextualize the risk or lack thereof, which I feel like a lot of people don't take the time to contextualize what, for example, if it had all failed and gone to zero, what that actually looks like. You know, a lot of people just feels like that's the worst thing in the world because no one wants to fail. But you did a really good job of contextualizing what that would have looked like had it all gone to zero for you. And you mentioned too in the beginning, and even today, you had a very romantic vision for what you wanted the agency to look like from kind of a culture perspective and everything. And I found a tweet from RDB and it said, from toxic pick, pitch culture to an agency that does better. And so you had the ambition to establish sustainability and social responsibility in advertising, which from my understanding was very not common amongst the industry at that time. So did you receive pushback from your peers in the industry outside of RDB when you were starting the agency? Yeah, well... Again, I was 26, right? So I had some fantastic peers who had experience. And I think they found it cute. So they were like, you know, it's cute. There is this young, very idealistic um, graphic designer who is, um, who, is, um, who is trying to build something. And, you know, let's see, that's cute with, with RDB, with that story of Robin Hood taking from the rich and giving it to the poor. They all, I think they all really liked that story because it reminded them of their younger selves and, you know, the values also that they they brought up. And I think they all, it's not as if advertising did never do anything pro bono, right? All the agencies have um, social clients and pro bono clients that they serve. And tremendously, there are some, there's some fantastic work and some fantastic successes out there. Um, My basic idea at the beginning was really to, quite easy economically actually right i as i said i was starting in an in an agency that was part of ipg so i knew the pain of those business owners to give 20% every year to a holding company just for holding the name 
And then I was always wondering, it's like, you know, we as an agency, we always consult our clients off a brand needs to tell a story. And then every agency is called after the founders. So, you know, what is foot cone and belding? What, what is the story behind that? McCann, what is the story? So there were no real brands in the agency sector. Um, and so that was, you know, with Robin Hood, that was all like, wow, okay, what is it? And more pushback than from my peers I received from the clients. Because the first, uh, the first reaction was either, well, then you need to talk to our CSR department. Or B, does that mean I have to pay 20% on top? Because the basic idea was instead of paying 20% to a holding company, um, we leveraged those 20% to do pro bono work for social clients, right? Which was quite a high, now that I know, quite a high factor um, with margins being so low today. But I think we always reached around 13 to 15%. Um, and so at the beginning, it really was, okay, now as long as you do your work and it's good and we don't have to pay extra, um, that's fantastic. You can do whatever you want. It's a cute story with you in your Robin Hood costume, but we just want the website. Um, and then it really shifted with Western Union because we started bringing that purpose, which I know today what it is, um, that social aspect, that love for people, culture, social justice. We brought that into campaigning itself, right? And that was probably three or four years before the full purpose boom and the purpose economy and and the dot-com bubble was just starting to fade out. So um, we had first mover advantage without knowing that it is. And it just came from a generational insight, I think, of, you know, we don't want to do this this way. We, we're, we're no longer like Gen X where it's about the car, about the house, about the money. We've seen what it did to our parents. We've seen what it did to our all the siblings it's not the world we want to live in and then um yeah it just started exploding from there right we did the first campaign that was so successful with western union was called mother's pride i still get boost again one of those naive stories where i'm like what the fuck were you thinking um so we did a a competition in the uk um because the story is actually horrible, right? So the, they call it in the Philippines, they call it passing of the torch. It's when you have a kid, your mom, you have a kid that is around two or three years old, you give it to your grandparents, you move abroad, you do the work, um, you work your ass off to um, fund better education, a better life for your kid. You see them maybe once a year, once every two years, three years. The kid is with the grandparents then that kid at one point will have their own kids. Mom comes back, becomes a grandmother that takes care of um, the, the grandchild and that mom is moving away. And so we really wanted, when we learned that, we really wanted to shed a light on this, right? That, that sacrifice, which you can almost not imagine of having to leave your kid behind and, and working in, in a blue collar job in, in, a, in a shitty apartment in, in London for you know, where the highlight is to go to McDonald's once a month and all the rest of the money is getting sent back home. Um, and so we did this, and I wasn't huge back then neither, we did this documentary style campaign, right? We, we found three families and we visited them in the UK and in the Philippines and 
shared both perspectives and uh, had this beautiful uh, surprise and delight moment where we had a dinner in London where we had the moms and uh, they were connected with uh, their in real time with their 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 grandparents and or their parents in in the Philippines where I was and my crew was in London and we had this dinner and at the end of the dinner they received the ticket back home to the Philippines and then you know very emotional and very beautiful and so that was how the US took notice of us and that's how we did that school for better campaign where we rebuilt that school in Dulac that could be a podcast by itself um and that's kind of how we took purpose social justice social cause marketing and turn it into you know what i think today is the essence of REV of course we still do a lot of stereotypical full funnel media uh creative where it's not everything is you know um purpose driven but i think that 20 30% core what makes us unique is is coming from there and it's still ingrained in our dna and that's what i'm i think most proud of that with that idea even different than we imagined it um that we became so successful and by now are this hidden champion in, in purpose-driven communication, right? And so let's talk about purpose for a minute. Like how would you, what is your definition of purpose? Um, I think it's quite close to the reason why, right? Um, it's, it's what is, I love this sentence. I don't know where the quote comes from, but you know, shareholder value doesn't get your employees up every morning. Why should they? Um, and I think that's becoming more and more frontline when we look at, you know, climate change at, at now COVID, even us now, we have a really hard time finding people um, in recruiting because they all say, what is, what is the meaning behind this, right? Why should I sacrifice 50 hours of my life every week to grow someone else's pocket or to do, you know, something that's completely meaningless? for me as a person and for the communities that I'm in. So to me, it's really about what is the reason behind the company's existence? What is the impact that the company has beyond financial gain? Um, what is the role that they play in their community with their peers, with their employees, with their clients? And in that interconnected global um, you know, economy, I think you start playing a bigger and bigger role because if you think about it, you know, I think we had that one statistic, the advertising spend in the U S yearly, I think is 10 times as high as the educational budget or as the housing budget or so there is a huge responsibility in communication and in business. Right. And if you think about it today, global massive companies are way more powerful than the UN than the European union. So, if the change is not coming from that private sector, um, we're screwed. So how do you, as a business, how, cause you said a lot of these, especially the agencies before you guys, and a lot of them didn't have their purpose. So how, like, what is your advice to businesses today or some of the person listening to this that has a company that doesn't necessarily know what their purpose is? How do they go about figuring out what it is or what it should be? That's a really interesting question. And one, we actually have a lot of discussions around, right? Because, um, so have to take a bit of a, a longer route there. Um, a couple of years ago, we realized with RDB that communication only goes as far, right? So we, we have access to the CMO, rarely to the CEO. 
So we can shape the brand, we can shape the narrative, and of course, that has some influence. But the whole purpose evolved into the topic of impact, and and that goes so much further than just um, communication and branding and marketing and advertising. So it's really going into the essence. It's supply chain. It's it's SDG strategy, ESG strategy, employer branding, um, culture, um, um, CO two footprint, all of that stuff, right? And so we then came to the conclusion, what if you have a business leader whose personal purpose is not aligned with the purpose of its business? And honestly, I don't have an answer yet, right? So imagine you have someone who actually deeply cares about kids, but he's, I don't know, he's selling fertilizer. So it will be really hard for that business leader to become passionate about the purpose of, you know, saving climate and 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 the ecosystems so i think it needs to be connected with leadership so you actually need to start with the leadership you cannot artificially put a purpose on top of a company i think it needs to be ingrained in leadership in those uh, c positions and there it's about finding those topics who are close to your heart and what I loved about the work that we did with RDB, I remember going into Western Union and shining a different light on the work that they do, right? Which was also very interesting because there was a cultural thing about how Americans or North Americans saw their daily doing and what it's about and how we perceived them from a European and from an Asian perspective, right? We really saw the impact that they have on the communities that they serve. And so we infuse that enthusiasm that we see back in those, into those boardrooms and you could see how they lighten up and they were like, yeah, of course, it's about, you know, that mom, it's about those kids, it's about creating uh, educational opportunity, it's about the things that I do really make a difference in the world. And maybe I don't see it every day, but in the bigger picture, I'm doing something where at the end of my life, I can look back and say, you know, those 50 hours a week weren't completely futile. So there are a couple of ways how you can do that. You can either really go deep into personal purpose and understand where does, what was the reason. With startups like TrueFan, it's a bit easier, right? Talking to Swish and getting why he started it is way easier than with a Fortune 500 company where the, the CEO has changed every three years. But even then, you can use the sustainable development goals as a framework. You can identify social causes that are very measurable, that are for the first time ever rationalized by all countries in the world as this is how we save it, this is how we, how we can see a 2050. And when you talk to these people, they all, these leaders, you have to get the kid out of them, right? You need to get those, that 13-year-old, 14-year-old idealist out of them and say, look, if it wasn't about money, why would you do what you do? If you could take away all the profit margins of your company, the, the shareholder value, how would you spend your time? What would be the causes that you dedicate your time against and your efforts against? And that's where you can start actually, right? And then often in just four or five hours or two hours, you really can take the essence out of that. And then, you know, it just becomes a matter of building the brand, building the impact strategy. Well, only the matter of building the brand and the impact strategy around it, but it's a great start. and. Um, and for leaders, I think it's really important. It's what took me, what got me through the last 10 years. It's what got me through COVID. 
I think if you lack that purpose, I think you're more um, more at risk to get into burnout. Um, you're more at risk at giving up because it's then all about KPIs, about you know success. And I think the numbers prove it. Brands and, and leaders who are purpose-driven have a longer breath, more sustainable success and can take hardship and, and failures easier because their inspiration and their motivation is not coming from there, right? If you do a small good thing or a big good thing, I think it always gives you the same sentiment. So I don't, I don't think it's a matter of scale, even if it's something small. I can think it gives you that purpose and that motivation to go on. So if purpose starts from from the top, it's top down, what has your approach been then to building the team around that purpose? Because obviously, like you said, it's difficult when the leader's purpose doesn't map to the business's purpose, but it must be almost as ta- challenging if the leader has a purpose, but the rest of the team below the leader doesn't care about that purpose. So how have you approached with RDB establishing a team that's bought into the culture and the purpose of the agency? Uh. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Um, we just had that conversation and we're really looking into our own brand because the, the challenge with purpose too, or you're just focusing on the purpose aspect is that it can raise false hope. And especially with our generation, Jake, right? If you, as I mentioned, maybe 10 to 20% of the work that you'll do will be purpose-driven or will have a real impact or direct impact. So it's really important to A, manage expectations, to, as I mentioned, to say every small difference makes a difference, right? Don't expect your company to change the world by tomorrow. It's the small wins and the small gains. But that's really hard to sell into the workforce because the workforce is expecting, you know, I with my direct contribution, I want to feel that purpose and I want to feel that impact, which is really hard to do for an accountant, which is really hard to do for a copywriter, maybe a copywriter even more. Um, but we know we often had that conversation about, yes, there is a part with Western Union that is purpose-driven, but 80% of the work is how can we help them drive app installs? How can we help them you know, to, uh, uh, to share their thought leadership on fintech topics and compliance? So you have a copywriter who is joining RDB because they want to make the change, they want to bring change to the world, and then I have to write fucking copy for, I don't know, compliance, right? Um, so it's it's a matter of, and I still think business itself hasn't quite figured that out yet. It's a matter of showing the bigger impact to the entire team. And what they're daily doing is enabling. But we really struggle, or I wouldn't say we really struggle, but we realize with it might not always be enough because you can only sacrifice yourself for so long to do something shitty so something good happens somewhere else, right? At one point, people are like, look, that's all fantastic that my work is enabling others to drive positive impact or to create impact. But at one point, I want to feel that myself and I want to see that myself. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do. I think it comes down to um, education and that's a massive part because the whole world of sustainability is so abstract and so far away. So 
you actually need to teach your employees and your workforce business KPIs first, which is really difficult with creatives, right? They want to do beautiful work. They don't care what is, what is the return on investment, what is the conversion rate, what is the footprint. Um, they want to do a beautiful campaign that raises beautiful emotions and shines light on a social cause. So you first have to do business education, and then you have to do impact education, right? And you come with abstract metrics of impact measurement and so on and so on. So there is still a long way to educate employees um, about how their work is contributing to a bigger impact. And then often it might become too abstract to them to really feel um, a part of it. So what we're trying to do is finding those small things, right? Getting them closer to the real impact and not always just building a school in the Philippines where, you know, they then have to write 300 posts about it while a small crew is over there producing the movie, but finding educational topics in the community where they can contribute to, right? Giving them a day a month where they can go into schools and, and support others or finding educational topics that are important to them. So yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing. I think it's really something that is shaking the essence of our business that is still built on the industrial revolution, right? You do your work from nine to five and really takes a more educated, more entrepreneurial workforce um, than we have today. So then when, if, when you're sitting down in an interview across from someone, what are some of the things you're looking for to know that there'll be a right fit within RDB's culture? The number one for us is the figure it out mentality. So it's about taking responsibility for making things happen to yourself, right? But let me give you the example of what I just discussed with the purpose. So um, we have a lot of social clients that we work on. And if you want to create more purpose, there is the opportunity, but you need to take it. You need to be willing to invest your time, maybe even extra time um, to dig into the topic, to invest your emotional investment and, and your time investment into this. So that is, don't look at anyone else to create that purpose and that impact for yourself. Each one of RDB's workforce um, needs to understand that there is a part where they are responsible to shape their own world, right? And the more people you have like this, the more worlds get created and the, beautiful, the more beautiful that ecosystem becomes. Because if not, it becomes, and this is a very European thing too, it becomes, well, they up there said this and this, and, uh, you know, it's not meeting my expectations. So I find someone else up there who might do it differently. Well, actually, it's about, you know, we all have to join forces to, to bring that change and we have to take responsibility ourselves. Um, so if I'm, you know, my decision, as I saw that I not necessarily, I did my, my social service in, in a hospice and I realized and I always knew I took a, a part of my mom, but um, I was similar to my mom, but I couldn't sacrifice myself like she did in, in you know, in care. I, I think I'd, I'd break. So I said, okay, I, I can't do it through care. What other way can I do to support uh, elderly people and people in the hospice? Okay, my skill set is branding, marketing. So what can I do with branding and marketing to support the hospice that I was so impressed with, right? And I think that's what I'm looking at at every RDB employee. How can they figure it out how to use their skill set um, 
to not only contribute to the RDB ecosystem, but to the bigger ecosystem. What else are we looking for? Um, a global mindset, um, definitely. So there's a reason why we're so many expats. I think people who live abroad, who move abroad are bold, um, um, self-sufficient, you know, they have, they take responsibility and they have to figure it out because, you know, new languages and new, new environment. Um, what else are we looking for? Building worlds and creativity. So connecting sounds so stupid, but connecting the dots. So if we talk about the topic of building a school and this for me mostly came from gaming, how can you build a world around the topic that you create, right? If you look at the Witcher, if you look at, um, uh, Baldur's Gate, if you look at some of those fantastic games, they had tons and tons of script just to build a world around the message that they want to bring across. So that's something else that we're looking into. Um, and passion and love. Really, I think um, being respectful to one another, um, loving what you do and loving the people around you is is so important because we spend so much time at work. And if you you know, don't want to share time and, and passion and love with the ones that are around you for 50, 60 hours a week, then please do something else because it's a waste of your time. And talking about the challenge of, of being an international agency with, with offices quite literally all over the globe. Like we talked about, there's one in Vienna, the Philippines office, there's San Francisco. I know you had a London office. I'm not sure if that office is still open or not today, but three or four offices around the globe, different time zones, different cultures, both as an office, but as just as people in society. So how do you handle and manage all of that with all these different people, which is already challenging enough when it's a group of people from the same place, but you have people from all over the world. So how do you manage that as a leader? Honestly, the cultural difference, cultural difference rarely were a challenge for us um, because of with a joint enthusiasm and a joint purpose and a joint passion you can overcome a lot of things, right? People don't join you because you're Austrian or you're French or you're American or you're Filipino. Um, they join you because you stand for something and they can rally behind the cause that you, um, that you pursue or what you stand for. And so we always attracted people. Me as a leader, I always attract people who had that same mindset, right? And, and just being caring and loving and enthusiastic i think gerard wrote in my in in my profile serial enthusiast and that's really the case i get uh, enthusiastic about you know meeting you jacob and and getting to know where you're from and about toronto and what's your upbringing and and why are you doing podcasts and I, i'm really enthusiastic and interested in you as a person and your background um and the same goes for every single rdb employee right and um and I find it fascinating that we have a copywriter from Chicago that is now living in Vienna. Um, I find it fascinating. I had no idea since that the Philippines are considered the most emotional country in the world. Um, I had no idea that Canada is so different to the U.S. And then in the U.S. you have all these different. When I got to Denver, I had no idea that these are the nicest people that you ever had. And I was fascinating that instead of having you know, lower income people working at the, at the airport, it's all stoners. So how amazing is that? Right. That gets me excited to have like at security, a lean 60 year old kid with glasses 
being completely stoned as a security guard at the airport. It's fascinating to see how um, those parents still have a relationship with the kids in the Philippines and how they treated me when I got there. It's just, I think those transcend um, culture. The human condition is the same everywhere, I think. It's if you if you spark the love, if you spark the enthusiasm, if you make people feel good about themselves and what they do and you really care and are interested, the rest falls into place. Um, and then the only difficulty is, are your expectations really aligned? And can you offer what the other person is looking for? Or can that person offer what you are looking for? The time zones are a bitch, though. That's really, um, that's really a challenge. So having to be up in the morning for Asia, working across Europe over the day, and then uh, having the calls in the US in the evening. And, but at the same time, it's a major advantage for us, right? We're really trying to build a system. I think it will still take some time. But where we have 24-5, you know, we can hand over work from the Philippines to the U.S., to the U.S., to Europe. No, from U.S. From Phil- from, how was it? I don't know. Philippines, Europe, Europe, U.S., U.S., Philippines. We could do a 24-hour circle, right? And technology today allows that. Yeah. And so how are, so you said that at, at, at its biggest, you had 45 people on the team in 2019 when you were working with Western Union. How many of those 45 were devoted to working on Western Union? Tons. I think I, I think there is not a single person at RDB who hasn't touched work for Western Union. We um and we're discussing this right now, but we consciously took approach the approach of not having people work. Well, okay, no, that's that's pretentious. Um but we don't have that classic agency model where people are only working on one client, right? Um, but that's also because Western Union became so massive, we always had to manage the growth. So we always had, we're always catching up with the growth we we drew with Western Union. So it's it's easy to say, well, everybody worked on Western Union because we didn't have a choice, right? We had to get as many hands as possible on it um, because, you know, from a small shop in Vienna with three people to become the global agency of record for content in, I don't know, 25 markets in 15 languages with people in South America for community management in the Philippines, everybody has um, to play their role and, and do their part. Um, so, yeah, yeah, everybody was working on Western Union. And even today, everybody touches Western Union. Yeah. And so my question based on that is, how do you ensure that you're giving... Obviously, because Western unions are so big, they take so much time. But how do you ensure the rest of your clients are getting the love, time, and attention they need while Western Union is just growing and taking up more and more and more of you and your team's time? I, um, so there is there's one thing you need to know is that we have so we're we're three people in leadership for RDB Europe. We have myself, but I took more of a global role, so I'm now looking at US and APEC more than I'm looking at Europe. I have Alex to run the Europe business. Um, and I have Denise who takes care of the impact business. So she really is the heart and soul of the agency, right? And I've talked way too little about her until now um, in this podcast. But she is the essence of social justice and um, and purpose and sustainability. Like I haven't, I've rarely met someone who's as passionate about social justice as she is, right? I'm a very, and I think I have to, I'm a very rational person i can always see 
for me, everything's gray. I think I started off black and white, but after those 15 years, everything's gray. Um, and she's still very much the, the, the shining star of what is white for RDB, right? In terms of black and white. And so she's taking care of all our social clients and she fought hard the last eight to 10 years to really make sure that our social clients get the same appreciation, care, and time as we did for Western Union, um, as Western Union received or eBay receives. Or, But it's always a trade-off, right? It's, it's always very difficult because the work that we do for these clients funds the work that we do for um, our pro bono clients. So it's a constant balance and it's a constant conversation and discussion. But at the same time, it's also a willingness from us as a leadership to say, look, maybe we make a little less profit this year, you know, but we would never drop our social clients and we would never say we can't afford it right now. We always try to, you know, make the best out of the resources we have available to support them as much as we can. Um, so, yeah, but it's not easy. It's not. It's, there is no formula where we can say, we rarely went back to Western Union and said like, nope, sorry, we can't deliver for you because we have to do this or that. It's just, it's just not flying even more in the US than it is in Europe. I was quite surprised of how fast paced and cutthroat the US business mentality is to be honest. And so you, and when did you start setting up the San Francisco office? That's the US office, right? Is in San Francisco? Yeah. Yeah. So we have uh, Michael Fennig in the US and Raima, who you know, who is now joining Truefen again. And we're currently recruiting. Um, we started San Francisco one and a half years ago, I think. Yeah. In the, right before the pandemic hit, we said, like, now is the time. So the whole year 2020 was, or was it? Yeah, 2020. Um, we were, when we were 40, we were on full expansion mode, right? We said, look, there's, there is only that time in that window of opportunity with Western Union. At one point, you can do all the fantastic work that you want. You cannot keep on a massive client forever. At one point, they will need fresh blood. They will want new ideas. They want something different or people leave and, and someone else wants to bring in their people that they trust. It's all, it's all, um, all fair and good, right? So we realized, look, while it's fantastic with that growth, there is an end date to it. At one point, and that actually happened, they will call us and say, we have to cut your budget. So we said, okay, we have to take whatever we can to expand. And also, quite honestly, the opportunity for attracting global business out of Vienna is limited, right? We have maybe four or five international brands. We have a lot of hidden champions, but our marketing budgets are a fraction of you can imagine Vienna is maybe the advertising market of Chicago. That's it, right? Um, so we would have to leverage the team and the, the contacts we have as fast as possible to get critical mass in the global in the global market. So we went full on. We had that team of forty. We invested like crazy into senior positions. We started the office in the Philippines one year before, but invested into the U.S. and then COVID struck struck and then it was a matter of okay how do we deal with this how long will it take um how can we keep the core of us and the talent together while making it through right and uh, as you know advertising is the first is the first sector that gets cut so um by a week after 
and it actually took the U.S. longer than than Europe to to react to the crisis. But as soon as the U.S. did, the calls came in and said like 500k there, 100k there, 300k there, and then you know you can you can discuss SOWs and contracts what you want. Um, it's what it is, and you have to comfort your client. And I get where they come from. It's not as if you know the CMO has any choice. It's what the what he gets as an order, and then you know we have to work in a partnership to see okay what can we do best to still support you with less resources and in the best possible way. And so overall, how did you guys handle the whole the whole crisis? Like it was just doing whatever you could for your clients, but from a from a culture perspective, like. I know it's a global agency, so you're already dealing remotely, but now it's it's different, right? Like, how are you handling the mental health of employees while budgets are getting cut? Like, how did you navigate through that whole period? We we will have to do that podcast in a year again, and then you will have to ask me the question again because I think the answer then will be very different than what it is today. Um, it was really interesting. So um, it was actually beautiful because we have, an event series called Impact Now um, that we do together with our sustainability consultant anyway. So it was beautiful. That it, I think it was the 23rd of March, 2020. We had that conference where um, we had people from all over the world. We had um, Ryan from the Philippines, who was a fantastic social entrepreneur. He came all the way from Manila here. We had people from Belgrade, France, uh, U.S., and we had the Filipino ambassador and we had, so it was just, you know, everything that was wrong in the moment of, Hey, this is a global pandemic. We should not travel and we should not be together in a close room. We were sitting there watching the press conference of our political leaders talking about, okay, this is getting real. Right. And then at at beginning, so we had to figure out how do we get those people back to the Philippines? Are the borders still open? How do we get Abdul back to Egypt, uh, Yaakov back to Serbia? And and we had very mixed reactions within the team. So some people were very concerned. Others were very much, I don't don't care about this. I'm going to stay and I'm going to do this. But we immediately took the position of... um, the health of our employees is the most important thing, right? So we immediately moved into home office, which of course for us was less of an issue as for anything else, anyone else, as you mentioned, we always were working remote and then did a ton. So ramping up communication, we had, we almost went into crisis mode, had very different chat groups um, for different reasons. Uh, found someone who was mainly responsible for health security and 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 uh th- that stuff and we had a brilliant back then a brilliant hr um who just started that day her first day was the day of the press conference when they announced covid um so she never actually met any of the team in person and had to navigate her way through that hr crisis right so we did a ton of um mental health we had you know almost daily meditations um consulting sessions um we always had an open mind but uh, an open ear um but it really took a toll on the team and on us and on everyone right um at the beginning it was all exciting and and we were very proud of ourselves you almost could see 
everybody goes into hero mode, right? Everybody's like, okay, no, now we get it. They work their ass off. They are super enthusiastic about we as a team, we do this. And then you can feel the first exhaustment, which was after six months, I think, in summer or autumn. And then people just hold on and they're like, they're not communicating that they're tired, that they're sad, that they're lonely because, you know, they still feel like they need to push through. Uh, and then it starts to shift. And then you can see exhaustment starting in. You can really start seeing. I actually wanted to take screenshots of the team from the first day to the last um, and see how people, and I, I swear to God, you would see how they just crumbled, right? You have to imagine these are creative people who are used to, you know, something goes wrong. They go for a cigarette or go for a drink after work. Um, they thrive on building things together and, and being in a community. And then you take that away and you turn them into production machines, which is very efficient. So we, I think efficiency went up 20% at RDB, but it's not sustainable. So we, we really have to figure out what is the model of the future? How can you keep that flexibility of remote working, of, uh, of being for yourself when it's, uh, when it's productive, but how do you keep that social fabric together? And um, I think it will turn, it will, you will meet for social um, and you will work at home, right? So I think for companies and especially for agencies, it will be a matter of uh, how do you bring people together in a meaningful way so that they can have that connection and get that energy from one another and not fall into loneliness and sadness at home. It's really hard. And so for RDB, are you thinking, because I know you have the beautiful office space, so is that going to be just kind of like there if people want to use it, but you can still stay fully remote or how are you kind of envisioning that for you guys? At the moment, that's the strategy we're pursuing. So we're still, um, we're still very careful. So people are still in home office at RDB. Um, but we started lifting it with August that what, whatever works for everyone works for us, right? So if, if you want to come into the office, that's fine for us. Of course, you have to stick to the rules um, and be careful. Um, but we're really looking into a model of, okay, um, when is it important to get together? It's brainstorms, it's um, discussions, it's uh, reports, it's um, reviews. How do, we, how do we manage these? So, and I think we will need to introduce some discipline into these meetings, right? There will be a part where it's mandatory to come in. Um, but honestly, the rest of the time, I don't care. Work from the beach in Greece, fly to the Philippines, work from there. I, I really don't care. If I have to look and control your work, we're, we're already screwed because it's impossible, right? If I can trust you, and if you can do your work in four hours, fantastic, you know? Balance your soul the rest of those four hours because you will be a healthier, more sustainable employee for us and you will do better work than. If you pretend to sit eight hours in the office, even though you have nothing to do, so let's see. I think it will be an experiment, and I think it will shake the the core of of business. Really intrigued. 
I'm curious how work-life balance differs in Europe versus over here in North America. Because I feel like work-life balance is such a hot topic right now, especially work from home where you can't, those lines blur so much and you find yourself working all the time. And it used to be a little bit easier where you could step away from the office, but how do you approach living in Vienna? What is your approach personally to work-life balance? Austria is very special. Europe is already special. Austria and France are very, very special. We have some of the strictest labor laws um, in the world. Um, labor is very high taxed, right? So the, the main difference be- that I realized for myself, if you do well in the US, you can do way better than you can do in Europe. But there is no cliff that you can fall off in Europe, right? So as soon as things go wrong in North America, I think Canada, I don't know, I'm not an expert. Um, it might be a bit bit more protective and a bit more, um, uh, like, I don't maybe a better social system, I don't know. So if everything's great, if I would have had my agency in the US, I think I would be wealthier, more known, more successful than I'm in Europe. But if things go south, I'd be screwed in the US, but I'm still very well off in Europe. So work-life balance and social security is very important to employees here. We already have an international disadvantage because we have five weeks of vacation automatically from the start. And then I think there are 13 random Catholic holidays that come on top. Um, You have to pay extra hours. And so it's already difficult to meet the industry needs, right? Advertising has always been a sector where people work a lot and they're passionate. So that already is a challenge if you only do business locally in the agency. But globally, with the time zones, even more. So it's a hard, it's a hard thing. We had a lot of people, even though we really try hard, um, burnout is always there, right? Um, we always have people, and I was there. Um, Alex was there at one point. Um, burnout is always around the corner, and you really have to be mindful about. Only because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Um, so maybe we can move that call to the next day and not take it at nine o'clock at night. Um, maybe we don't have to take that presentation. Maybe. And what's really difficult because of the people we attract, they're really hard on themselves, right? And enthusiasm often turns into passion and passion turns into burnout because they are so hard on themselves and they really want to perform and they really want to meet high expectations. And young people don't often have those checks and balances where they can, you know, realize that, okay, my energy level is getting low and I'm just forcing myself into the next cycle. So, yeah, it's really tricky. And uh, I think the U.S. is brutal. And I think there is a lot, a lot of inefficiency and toxic behavior because of people being overworked and being overstressed. And I'm pretty sure if, if you would make that a bit leaner and a bit more... um European, I think that would actually uh, bring up um, productivity in the U.S. I mean, what you have, what, a week of 
vacation. It's crazy. Two. Weeks. Like, how can you balance your life? Yeah, two weeks. And most people don't take them, right? And then they're always on during those two weeks. It's insane. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I'm going away on vacation next week. And I've told some clients like, hey, I'm going away. But by the way, I can still get all the posts up. Don't worry, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's a vacation, but I'm still working every single day because I'm working in social. Um, but I think it's an interesting point that you say that, that despite, even with RDB, where it's a purpose-driven company, where there's meaning behind the work that you're doing, that burnout is still a reality. Like, I feel like a lot of people think like, oh, if I just like my job more, I wouldn't burn out. But it's a reality no matter where you work. So your point, it's about being mindful with how much you're actually working. But how often do you take the time to look back on the whole journey? going all the way back to the early days with the agency pre-RDB to starting RDB with three people, much more rushed than you anticipated, landing that first contract with Western Union, 45 people at one point, making it through COVID. How often do you look back on the entire journey that it's been? Rarely because it's overwhelming, to be, to be very honest, right? Um, the last 15 years were so intense and so overwhelming in terms of um what is the right word in input right so um there are parts when i went to uganda the first the first two weeks in the philippines that campaign also if you go there and you know this right if you if you go somewhere as a creator you have a different lens it's not as if you travel or if or as an entrepreneur it's not as if you travel for holidays because you're behind the camera or you're doing the art direction so you're you're constantly focused and you get you, you basically have no filter right you take everything in and to be honest by now i learned that my subconscious my subconsciousness my ram my um has a limit um and i need to rest to have my subconsciousness digest things and evolve things and develop things COVID, though, the last year really was, I think, important for me because for the first time I said, okay, this could be a stop. This could end here, right? This could be the end of the journey, at least for a while, because it's threatening to my business. It's threatening to my life. There were some um, health concerns in my family. And suddenly you wake up and you realize, okay, you're 35. The last 15 years were amazing, but you actually never really had the time to soak it in. And there were a couple of phases in in those ten years where I was close to burnout, and I, you know, and then you just you just perform, and you just you're just used to um, moving with the stream, and that's actually when often you don't take things in as much as you should, and you don't reflect as much as you can on them or should. So, but last year. Um, yeah, I was just really, really grateful for the amazing people that joined me on that journey, the wonderful people that I met, um, the amazing opportunities that I had, the the life that I could build with you know my passion, um, the the luck of my parents bringing me up the way I they did, um, the the wonderful people that um, like Karen, Michael, um, Beant, Rudy. There are so many people who enabled me and trusted me at a very young age. And, uh, you know, it wasn't my choice to say, I want to become the social agent, global social agency it was Karen coming to me said, 
I think you would have what it takes to become our global social agency. And I'm like, oh, why? <laughs> but just, yeah, trust me, you're going to do great. And we did. So yeah, it's, I think that the older you get and the more experience you have, um, the ease that the more you start to look back and realize how fucking lucky you were and how grateful you can be for, um, you know, just the environment that, that surrounds you. I know we're at a time here, so I'm just going to jump to my, my last question that I ask everyone at the end of every interview. Um, you said we'll have to do a podcast in a year if I can ask you that question again. I'm on board because there's so many things we haven't even had the chance to touch on yet, like everything else going on with the Major Oak and all these other endeavors you're doing, Maya's place. There's so, so many things. Um, but the last question I'll ask you today, I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. Pretend you have a crystal ball. You can ask this crystal ball any question. You'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you'd like to know the answer to? Wow, that's a good one. That one question I would like to have the answer to. I think at the moment is how much is really necessary. Uh, in terms of that um, work-life balance, that mental health issue, like how, how often are you giving too much? Right, which might not be necessary, and how often are you overburdening yourself, where it, or overstressing yourself, or overworrying? Right, I can see it everywhere. I see it with my clients. I see it with my employees. People are so hard on themselves and are so worried all the time and are so stressed. And I would re—I don't think it is, but I would really like to have the answer to how much of that is actually necessary. Shouldn't this all be a bit easier? I like that question. No one's ever asked that question that way before. And I think it's an important question to ask. And I think even though we don't have a crystal ball, I think it's an important question that people should be asking themselves. But um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'd like to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Plug anything and everything you got right now. Thanks, Jacob. So first of all, check out rdb.agency. Um, we're currently recruiting in the US and in Europe. So if you fit the profile that we talked about, please join us. We really need um, we really need support because now business is picking back up again. And I think the world is going to go into a 1920s kind of theme where everybody is going to be, finally, we can meet again and uh, let's have a good time. So I think the economy is going to boom. Um, so rdb.agency, check us out on the social channels. We really have some great content in terms of education around full funnel marketing, social. Um, we have a beautiful um, comm specialist with Gerard who talks about um, diversity, equality, LGBTQ, uh, which is a massive topic for us. Um, check out The Major Oak if you want to learn more about so themajoroak.com of what I have in mind uh, for the future. And then uh, check out our very, and we didn't have the chance today to talk about it, but this is where I am today, um, Maya Sanctuary on Instagram. Um, it's a project that we're currently building for RDB and the ecosystem where we want to build a sustainable work hub, which is, um, you know, on the brink of new working, new living with uh, animals, uh, sustainable agriculture and um, a remote workspace and, um, and workshop hub with uh, all being self-sustainable. So that's the next crazy thing where I know in five years I'll talk to you if I would have known back then what it would have taken i would not have done it but apparently that's the way i work um 
So yeah, you'll find me. Just um, Google my very easy to pronounce name, Mario Alonso Debu, and uh, you'll figure it out. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below so people can find it. And I want to thank you once again, Mario, for taking time to be on the podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you've listened the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Mario. Go and follow Maya Sanctuary. Check out RDB. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below, like I said, so you can find it. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me everywhere on social media at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. As always, today's podcast is powered by True Fan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon. Take care, Jacob. Thank you. 